All right. So, um, I'm kind of, um, I don't want to do a lot of force feeding. I think what I will take up this morning is um, how does our practice address suffering? And we've certainly spoken some about this. Take it from a couple of different um, angles. And um, of course, I'm, I'm hoping we can have conversation as well. So I guess we could call this, so how does it work exactly? What are the active ingredients? So, you know, thinking about the formulation of suffering. It's this notion that it is resistance or our relationship to experience. It, the beauty of this is that in many respects the response is so close at hand. You know, It is so convenient. We don't need to go anywhere. We don't even need to be any different from how we are. So there's something enormously simple about it, and yet, of course, it is enormously difficult to do. It's difficult because we are swimming against the current of a lifetime of conditioning. You know, if our impulse is always to take leave of, to try to control, to judge our experience, um, make things to our liking, it actually takes a great deal of conscious effort uh, to begin to put the brakes on that. And even when we're able to do so, you know, the vehicle continues to roll for a long time before it gradually slows down and comes to a stop. Um, so I've tried to highlight something about the difference between kind of the the Buddhist formulation of suffering and just as a bit of a a straw man, the the medical model. But the medical model, of course, is something that we have um, absorbed in so many respects, which is the almost instinctive sense that um, things must change, you know. I must change. The world around me must change for things to get better. Something needs to be fixed. And the thing that's a bit difficult to grasp in this practice is surrendering the entire notion that anything needs to be fixed at all. You know, that I need to be a better kind of person. It's hard to grasp this notion that freedom and well-being is at hand by virtue of dropping, not getting anything, not getting not being a better person, but just dropping the need for things to be any different from how they are. You know? Even when we get a taste of it, it slips away again. But we begin to get a suspicion that maybe 
there's abundance right where we sit. So in terms of how mindfulness works, um, some of this is a bit repetitive, but you know we can, because we're talking about the mental sphere, almost any language that we use to describe it is ultimately a bit metaphoric. So these are all metaphors. You know, we can talk about learning emotional regulation. We can talk about our growing capacity to hold more experience without spilling over. Now, this makes some intuitive sense to me. There's a, uh, a metaphor that uh, I first heard from Sharon Salzberg and may be familiar to you, but she describes how if you were to take a tablespoon of salt and to, to put it in a cup of water, you know, the water's going to taste very salty. But if you were to take the same tablespoon of salt and put it into a bucket or a tub or you know, a larger container like even a pond, the salt is still there. But the, the flavor is no longer so, so acrid. You know? In that same respect, one of the things that we might say we're doing in our practice is to become this larger container. You know, the salt, which is to say slings and arrows, uh, is still there. But we become this larger container capable of holding so much more. Or to extend that metaphor, uh, it's as though the container, by becoming larger, simply holds more without spilling out. We can just contain all of it. We can sit right in the middle of difficulty and notice the difficulty and not spill out. We could talk about how our practice works by learning to disidentify with our thoughts or stepping out of identification with the thought stream, right? And this is, you know, we, we, we've already spoken a bit about this, but it is interesting how it can happen, those moments when you, even for a moment, see thoughts as thoughts and how interesting that is. Or even further, when actually, maybe for a moment, you actually see the thoughts as not self just some impersonal event, as if you were listening in on the person next to you. you know? It's just, just phenomena. We could speak about how this practice works by uh, revealing what was formerly hidden. And some of you have spoken about this in your own experience. You know? Sometimes the pressures uh, that are exerting themselves on us in a, almost a subterranean way remain unconscious. So we could just say a little bit differently that this is making conscious that which was unconscious. We could speak about practice in terms of restoring balance. Another way to think about one of the benefits, which I particularly like, is that we're simply learning how to be kind to ourselves. Right? It's astonishing how unkind we can be and how it can almost be invisible to us because it is so familiar, you know? As though we could berate ourselves into being either better people or being um, kinder. I remember seeing in somebody's uh, carol in a, in a workplace a sign that said, um, the beatings will continue until morale improves. And, and, and this is the approach that we often take to self-improvement. It comes from an attitude of judgment and self-rejection. And you know, it doesn't much work. 
So I think about um, different approaches to learning. And if you had, imagine a student sitting at a desk trying to learn a math problem, and you had a, a teacher standing um, over his or her shoulder with a stick, and every time the kid makes a mistake, gets a big whack, right? I mean, that's motivation. You can learn that way out of fear. But you can also imagine a teacher who instead, every time the, the kid gets an answer right, you know, way to go.
All right. I may have solved the uh, AV issue. I think it was the battery. Can you imagine? Here's the battery, yeah. Jesus <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the basic uh, solution to most of life's problems is just reboot the damn thing. <laughs> yeah, restart. Well, I'm glad you feel safe enough to share your remote control story. Um, all right, so... Um, Back to the theme of how does this all work, um, talk a little bit about just one remaining concept, and that's the whole notion of insight. Right? Um, pretty difficult to define insight because it is so context-dependent. You know, um, And in this tradition, it's not knowledge. You know, but it really, as I had mentioned the, uh, yesterday, it really a kind of a condition of being or a condition of mind. Now, it has a particular flavor <coughs> in psychoanalytic terms, the, the flavor of kind of correcting a distorted view, of lifting the veil of our defenses, or somehow deepening self-knowledge. And this is a kind of a point of convergence between more conventional forms of self-knowledge and um, insight in our practice, because um, in both cases, it's understood that insight is what is liberating to us. In other words, neither analytic therapy or most good psychotherapy or practice are about taking the happy pill. You know, they're not about affirmations or about kind of creating the ideal circumstances for ourselves. The assumption is that we are simply better off by knowing the truth of matters than rather than living in our world of delusion. Right. In the analytic view, at least in the early analytic view, um, insight was pretty difficult to tolerate because if we are really in touch with our most primitive urges, it's, uh, it's a bit destabilizing. And this is where I had mentioned that the goal then is insight but fortified by mature defenses. Um, in the Buddhist view, it's also insight that is liberating. It's not the happy pill, but it is removing some of the... <coughs> um, you know the the delusions that we tend to practice and are and are so attached to. So this insight is not about mere adjustment; it is actually about learning to rest in the truth of the matter. In Buddhism, classically speaking, insight is often described as being insight into the three marks of existence: right, impermanence, not self, and suffering. And that that is what uh, awakens us. But, you know, as people here have described, um, insight comes in so many different forms, and some of them they may be quite small. You know, just seeing what we're up to. The woman who backed her car, who, who found someone backing into her car in the parking lot of the convenience store, or so many moments of seeing clearly, which are not easily rolled up into insight into the three marks of 
of existence. And in this respect, much of the insight that we gain in our practice isn't necessarily profoundly liberating. It may just be seeing clearly what we're up to, right? Um, insight into what another person is feeling that we hadn't quite understood before. Um, and this kind of insight, too, I would say, is scalable. You know, from these very small moments of coming to our senses, you know, from a place of fuzziness to, um, you know, to a little bit of clarity to, and scalable all the way up to, to moments of really deep realization, you know. In particular, insight into the nature of what we are and what we are not. And the term that's often used for this is, of course, waking up, which is a lovely descriptor. Um, I think uh, by analogy, it seems kind of apt because we go from a place of being kind of stuck in some state of confusion or a limited perspective to suddenly realizing that it was simply a mental construction. Um, I remember Joseph Goldstein using the metaphor of, um, he said, imagine that you're sitting and having a conversation with someone in the kitchen and then the refrigerator compressor cycles off and now it's suddenly quieter. Up to that moment, you hadn't even noticed the background noise until it was gone. I think the experience of insight is a little bit like this. It's as though um, we don't even know the degree to which we were stuck in something until the moment that it begins to lift. Um, You know, like recognizing when we were daydreaming. You know, we don't actually know it until that moment that we wake up. And and as an aside, in our meditation practice, there's a lot of this waking up. You know, every time we go from being lost in thought or absorbed in something to recognizing that we were lost in thought, this is a moment of insight. This is a moment of awakening, right? Because we've now moved from some absorbed state into dropping into life as it is in this moment. Now, there may still be thought, there may st- still be emotion, but that movement is really worth paying close attention to, right? Because we're, we're going from, well, what is it? What are we waking up to? You know, you can even ask yourself this. You've come to. Come to what? What have you returned to? And what's the qual- what is the difference in the quality of your experience in that moment when you go from lost in thought to, oh, I was lost in thought? You know, what is presence? How do we know that we're present? it's really worth kind of examining that little subtle movement, and it can be quite subtle, you know? And what's more, it is worth in those moments uh, celebrating it. This is a little moment of enlightenment, you know? This is a moment of waking up. What does it feel like? And celebrating it and allowing it to be known, becoming really familiar with that, that crossover point. It's not as though it's essential that you remain mindful all the time. Our learning is happening in those moments of crossover, you know, the moment that we come to again, and the willingness to do it again and again. It's not a problem that we went off. It doesn't matter how long you've been gone. It doesn't matter where you've gone. What's important is the moment that you notice that it has happened um, and the willingness to come back again. So next time you're practicing, ask yourself in that moment of returning to presence, what's different? You know, what's that, what's, what is that quality? Because you know? we are practicing waking up in that. 
in that moment. We could even call it insight, not in the sense of anything transformative, but now we have seen our mind a little bit more clearly. Paul? Yeah. Um, a, a story, a little awakening. I uh, went into a really crowded coffee shop in the town where I lived. Must have been <coughs> 75 or 100 people. And uh, so I was standing in line scanning the crowd for people who I like and know, for people I didn't want to see. And I realized that was the only relevance that 75 or 100 people had to me. And it was astounding. Yeah, right, right. So is this awakening to the three marks of existence? No, but it is liberating in that moment because we see what we're up to. We see how we've divided the world up in some arbitrary fashion. Yeah, we all have these experiences all the time. Um, I think there's something about insight that is always uh, kind of... It's like... uh, Remember station wagons? Um, And remember the way back? The way back was the back seat that was often facing backwards. And if you were the youngest, that's where you sat. And so what you would see is not where you're going. (laughs) You you would always see where you just were. And I think insight is like this. It is, oh, that's what I was up to. You know? Um, And I think insight into our construction is useful because we see what I was up to and how it was some kind of... um, a fixation that we hadn't perceived. We, take, we took it to be real, right? And then what comes next? We enter a new construction, a new way of understanding it, a new fixation. Maybe it's a little better because we've abandoned something that was limiting and constricting. But now we've just occupied a new construction. Maybe we're proud of ourselves because we think we've come to something new, but all it is is the mind continuing to do what it does, which is spin stories one after another. And then we realize we've done it again. And it's like infinite regress, you know, like barbershop mirrors. It's stepping back and back and back. And I don't think it's like we, uh, we necessarily find ourselves in a place where that isn't happening, at least not for more than a moment, you know, where there's no constructing the unconditioned. But I think one of the things that this does is it begins to inform us about um, the mind. It's saying, oh, this is what the mind does. It is constantly spinning these tails, these cocoons that we occupy as real. And even though we can't necessarily muscle our way out of that, there is a growing suspicion that we're always occupying some kind of a position and that none of them are fully trustworthy. Right? The mind is always trying to plant a flag wherever it is. And we, even though that process doesn't stop, we can begin to lose our confidence or our conviction that um, any one of these is fully trustworthy. And this is maybe, maybe what I was getting at when I said that I had kind of lost confidence in my, con- my own confidence in my own ideas. What we understand is that for our own convenience and perhaps out of fear, we are always trying to secure a a stance, you know, a place to stand. And at least seeing the degree to which this happens means that we can begin to loosen our grip a little bit on our effort to declare 
It is this way or that way. And it is in service of not knowing. And it's not that I've got no ideas about things or that I've got no opinions about things. It's just that I just don't really put a whole lot of faith in them anymore because it's infinite regress, you know? So this is groundlessness, right? That there's really no place that we can stand with perfect confidence. You know, I think this is part of the liberating quality of insight, and it is not comforting, but it is liberating. Um, oh, actually, this is just another little anecdote. Not quite to that point, but um, another little small experience of insight. I was on a retreat. Well, and there was a fellow on the retreat, and we were in silence. And there was a fellow on the retreat who looked a whole lot like a patient I had known in the state hospital. And this particular patient, I, I have to say, I found um, loathsome and repulsive. <laughs> I couldn't go near him. I, I really found him repulsive. And God bless the nurses, you know who could deal with this person in a way that I wasn't capable. This person on retreat looked like him. Now, I knew full well it wasn't him. But there is some way in which my habitual reaction on seeing him was conditioned you know, by this association. Oh, there's that guy. You know? And I knew it. And I knew it. And yet, I still had this kind of reaction. When the end of the retreat came... And we broke silence and people would speak. In the moment he spoke, first of all, this patient never spoke because he had no larynx. He had drunk Drano or something and, and destroyed, destroyed his esophagus. Well, just to give you the full picture, as a result, he, he couldn't eat, but it didn't stop him. So he would, he would eat and then spit it out because he couldn't swallow. And then he would spew phlegm from, from the stoma. From the... <laughs> ah! Yes. Anyway, this guy spoke, and, and the patient had never spoken. And in that moment, it was almost like an audible popping sound, you know, like a bubble had popped. And um, like I say, I knew he wasn't that patient, but I didn't really know it either. And in that moment, he, you know, that just vanished. It just vanished. It's so interesting. You know, often that, you know, the insight doesn't happen quite so palpably. But, um, yeah, like a soap bubble, it just popped. Now, that's a moment of stepping back and seeing what we're up to. And while we're in it, it's really hard to do. And it's really hard to will ourselves into having that kind of understanding. It almost seems to happen accidentally. And I think one way that we can understand our practice is not to try to muscle our way into insight, though Lord knows I have tried, you know, tried to see, not self, tried, tried. It doesn't work like this. Rather, these things uh, have a way of coming to us as if accidentally. And so one way we can understand our practice is that we are training ourselves to become a little accident-prone, you know, not trying to make anything happen at all. This is the great paradox, right? We practice because we want something, whether it's we're clear about what we're practicing for or whether it's a secret practice that we've kind of kept hidden from ourselves. And so we have to make some kind of effort. 
but the effort itself is often the very thing that is obscuring things. So there's this great, you know, this paradox between effort and um, acceptance. We've spoken a little bit about this already. Call that Chaitana? I don't know. T-E-T-A-N-A? I don't know. So it's it's the Pali word for like the positive. It's not the tanha. It's not the craving, hmm. but it's moving in direction of um, the diligence that, that to overcome obstacles. So it's that volition hmm. in service of the path. Yeah. So that's not a question. That's just a really good. Clarification. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. That there are um, healthy and wholesome desires, right, and unwholesome desires. And the desire for awakening, of course, is a wholesome one, even if ultimately it too has to be abandoned. You know, I think the other another term for this is bodhicitta, if I'm understanding that correctly, the way-seeking mind. Yeah. Um, you know, it is also, I have heard said, and I think this came from, again, Philip Kaplow Roshi, that, um, that we all have in us innately that part of us which is drawn to uh, seeking wisdom. You know, it may be a very quiet voice, but it too is an innate potential, you know, and we, we're giving it space so that it becomes a, a kind of a trustworthy guide. Um, Yeah, so I think there's some element of wisdom that is not about a stance whatsoever, but a constant stepping back and stepping back and a loosening, loosening of this grip on our need to know or to be correct or to at any point assume that we've arrived at anything whatsoever. You know, that's, uh, you know the story of turtles all the way down. You've heard this? I've heard this described in so many um, different um, contexts. I, first I heard it was from an anthropology professor but it's, it's been elsewhere as well. And, and the way I heard it was that uh, an anthropologist went to a small village in India and was interviewing people about their cosmology. And he was interviewing an old woman who, said, uh, who was talking about how the earth rests on the back of a turtle. And um, the anthropologist said, oh, and um, what's holding the turtle up? And she thought a moment. She said, another turtle. And he said, what's holding that turtle up? And she caught on to where he was going, and she just cut him off by saying, it's turtles all the way down. (laughs) So this is is turtles all the way down. There's no beginning and there's no end to those turtles. (laughs) Anyway, insight in this respect is not in a particular... I mean... These examples that that I've offered, that that many of you have offered, are often about specific things. But um, in some respects, I think we can understand, insight is understanding that all fixed positions are inherently false and unreliable. It's not that we don't hold them or that we don't generate them constantly but that we um, understand that as, as conditioned phenomena, they are impermanent, unreliable, subject to change. And so we get a little more flexible, right? You know, we get a little bit less wedded 
to our fixed ideas about who we are and simultaneously into a, a little less wedded to our fixed ideas about how things should be and how other people should be. Right? So this doesn't mean we stop generating ideas and positions, but our relationship to the process begins to change. You know, um, I, Some of you have, have heard this, say this before, but I had a friend growing up. Um, his name was Kirk Jackman. He, he, he was a wild man, and I have so many great stories about this guy. But one was that he had this bike that had... Um, you know, the tall handlebars and a, and a banana seat, big, fat, bald tires, and no brakes and no fender, no fenders. So when he would ride this thing, he would wear a heavy leather glove, and if he needed to brake, he would reach over and he would um, slowly tighten his grip on the front wheel. And of course, if you, you know, if you grip too tightly, you get thrown off, as he did, you know? It was a pretty delicate thing to do. I think of this because uh, um, I think this business of letting go of fixed positions is like loosening your grip, right? Just you know, letting it spin somehow and not gripping because of the danger that it's going to just uh, cause you to get thrown. So insight, I think, helps us to understand that so many of our most cherished opinions are just opinions, you know? And that most of what we think and most of what we say, what we talk about, ultimately has all the substantiality of opinion. You know? <coughs> so we begin to see that any, fi- any fixed position is already a problem. This is the perspective, we might say, of no perspective. It's really hard to kind of put a handle on it. Because the moment we we try to put it into language, it's already as though we're trying to nail it down for our convenience. But this is the wisdom, you know. This this is uh, the business of um, holding to nothing, holding to nothing, even if the conditioned impulse is always to try for our convenience and our safety to to declare this is what I am, this is who I am. <coughs> I'm going to stop here because you've got to stop somewhere, right? <laughs> so so this will be it. Um, yeah, so why don't we make our way over to the Dharma Hall and um, we'll see you there in five minutes or so. Yeah. And we'll finish out the morning there.